Hello, I'm Dan Leach Wilkinson, welcoming you to the podcast that summarises my ongoing online book, Challenging Performance, Classical Music Performance Norms and How to Escape Them. This is episode two, Belief in Classical Music. As I suggested in episode one, I imagine I'm speaking with you because you're a young professional performer or a conservatoire student or someone who listens a lot and who cares very much about how performance happens and what it does. And I'm focusing specifically on core repertoire of Western classical music, not because I think it matters more than other music, but because I think it's where the biggest problems lie where there's greatest need for rethinking practices. In episode one, we looked at how narrowly performance is confined by ideas about what's acceptable and at how differently even very well-known scores have been sounded in the past and could be sounded now. Here in episode two, I want to look a bit more closely at the beliefs that maintain the constraints surrounding modern performance. If you've ever tried to put one of your own performances online, you may have been the victim of an algorithm that checks for piracy. Quite often, it claims that someone else, usually one of the big record companies, owns the rights to your recording, which can be disconcerting when you've made it yourself and you're playing a composer who's been out of copyright for several centuries. Partly this happens because the algorithm expects music in which the notes are different from anything else online, which is rarely the case in classical music. But it's also partly because classical performances are usually relatively similar. The algorithm is designed for popular music where every cover of a song intends to offer a new perspective on it. In classical music, of course, we all feel our performance is unique. We've grown up valuing small performance details and finding them very significant. It's how we feel that we're bringing something of ourselves to our music making. But the details that differ are really quite small compared to the much greater similarities. It's only when we look across at theatre that we see how peculiar our practice is. Nobody in the theatre world is shocked by radical new readings of canonical texts. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's why people go to see the same plays in new productions. And it's why theatre attracts enough followers to sustain a run of performances for each new production. People want to know what a great text by a long-dead playwright can tell us about our own world. They want to find things in it they've never heard there before. And so theatre critics don't criticise actors as music critics accuse performers of being, quote, mincing, droopy and vulgar, when instead of saying to be or not to be, they say to be or not to be. Just to illustrate the tiny differences that can create outrage from music critics. Let me just play you a moment from the performance that was considered mincing, droopy and impossibly vulgar.
So that wasn't so bad, was it? Why is there a normal performance at all in classical music? And why the critical fury on the rather rare occasions when, like Anatole Ugorsky in Für Elise, a performer gives us something very slightly different? The problem, of course, is that musicians are brought up to believe they must be faithful to the composer's intentions. And teachers and critics and other gatekeepers claim that they know what those intentions were. Underlying this are two related beliefs. First, that the composer was almost godlike in his genius, meaning that his understanding of how his notes could work must necessarily be better than anybody else's for all time. And secondly, that classical music, although it can be realised in sound, actually exists in the form of works created by composers that have particular characteristics which must always be sounded in any and every performance, with performance as a subsidiary and subservient activity to composition. Why don't people believe this in theatre? Is Shakespeare a lesser genius than Beethoven, less deserving of faithful performance? Are his texts less work-like? Are they, a dangerous thought, more capable of sounding well in very different performances than Beethoven's are? Can Shakespeare's texts illuminate current concerns in ways that Beethoven's can't? Does Beethoven, in fact, need more protection in order for his music to sound well? And why would he? Is he more fragile than Shakespeare? Or more easily upset in some kind of artist's afterlife? Or have we got ourselves into a bizarre situation in which unreasonable beliefs about classical composers and their texts are leading us to behave in irrational and counterproductive ways that limit our choices and our artistic freedoms and limit the ways in which we're able to engage a public for what we do. Is classical music behaving, in fact, less like an artistic practice and more like a religion? We do treat the great composers as gods. We see their scores as sacred texts. The gatekeepers to the profession act much like priests, exhorting us to obey the gods' instructions, while performers try to be faithful and obedient, to perform the rituals correctly, trusting that when we get them right, in a worshipful frame of mind, we'll experience revelation and transcendence. The onus is on us to believe fervently enough, to perform faithfully enough, the composers are perfect. It's only performers and listeners who may fail them. This really isn't a very healthy way to think about making music. If you know some great composers, you'll know that they're no more godlike than the rest of us. With a few exceptions, they're generally very willing for performers to show them how their scores might go and see their relationship as collegial rather than master and servant. There's a lovely quote from Elliot Carter, who said that whichever performance he was hearing always seemed the best. And I think that's many composers' experience. Even things they definitely didn't intend can seem interesting. Here's Lottie Lehmann talking about singing 
for Richard Strauss. I must tell you a very funny story about this song. I sang it with Richard Strauss, and when we, uh, when we rehearsed it, I took a very wrong tempo. Uh, he wants it very slowly. Und wandle hinaus in den Garten zum Rosenstrauch. But I felt it very differently. I felt it very quickly, and I started. Und wandle hinaus in den Garten zum. He said, Are you crazy? What's the matter with you? <laughs> This is a slower tempo. And I said, I think that's terrible. I feel it quick. And he laughed. He had very much humor. And he said, no, this is very wrong, but uh, let's go through it. So if you like it, I want to hear it. And I sang it very quickly. And he laughed very much on the end. He said, what you do is entirely wrong, but I like it. <laughs> so if Lehmann made music from his score that Strauss had never intended, but that he liked, what is the music itself? For that piece. Musicians often talk about the music itself or the actual music, assuming, believing, that there is some eternal core that's more than the notes in the score and that comes across in every convincing performance. But what is it? What does it consist of? Which sounds or feelings are essential and which are not? In practice, no one knows. And so it's an idea that's available to be used by anyone who wishes to claim that something they feel is essential really is a key ingredient and must always be experienced in any performance. It's coercive, in other words. It aims to force others to conform to one's own understanding and to sanctify that understanding, making sounding it a duty of faithfulness. It protects the claim that scores have to be performed in currently approved ways. It hides the potential of scores to sound and mean quite differently. We saw in episode one, using early recordings, how beliefs about what the great composers did and wanted also change from one generation to the next. Because we're supposed to perform the rituals in exactly the same way, the composer's way forever, change happens in tiny steps too small to be noticed and prevented, which is why it takes generations for major differences to be obvious. But the fact that performance does nonetheless change so much over time shows just how much performance is always contributing to the identity of the music that gets made when we perform a score. That identity changes over time as performance style changes. And so the belief that composers define and their scores contain the essential nature of their work is really not very plausible. What scores sound and feel like is defined only very sketchily by the composer. At least as much again is created by performers and by listeners. Listen to these three performances from different periods of the same phrase from a song by Schubert.
Which is most correct? Which comes closest to sounding Schubert's true work? I haven't a clue. No one has. Schubert might have had an opinion, or he might have liked them all, or hated them all. But he's been dead for 200 years, so his view is forever beyond our reach. All three performances work well. They all can make sense of the text, albeit three very different senses. They all make moving art with sound. Individually, we may prefer one or another. But is it anyone's business to say that any of them is wrong or come to that mincing, droopy or vulgar? And why would you want to? But the very fact that what performers do makes so much difference is, unfortunately, why it is so heavily policed. It's why a critic insults you when you do something unfamiliar. It's the nature of performance to contradict that most precious belief that the composer knows best and can be accurately obeyed. And also, of course, to contradict the critic's belief that it's their right to tell you what you should and should not have done. I hope you can begin to see how it's only by treating classical music as a religion that the natural tendency of performance to contribute meaning can be constrained and controlled. This is what religion always does. It coerces people to behave other than they would behave left to themselves. When it comes to some kinds of human behaviour, that can be very desirable. But why seek to control the performance of Western classical music, for heaven's sake? What possible harm does creativity do there? To take the religious element out of our understanding of classical music is not to take the mystery or beauty out of it. Brilliantly composed scores, brilliantly performed, will still move us just as much as ever, maybe more than before. So why are we trained to believe these strange things? I suggest three reasons. First, it's a lovely idea that there is a perfect form for a musical performance. It's comforting. Remember, we've been taught these beliefs since childhood. Training our bodies in the extraordinarily complex coordination of brain and muscles that lead performers to be so astonishingly skilled later in life, that's to say, training technique, happens alongside and tangled up together with training children in the approved beliefs about love for and faithfulness to the great composer, about the sanctity of musical texts, and about the truthfulness of the interpretative tradition one's teacher is passing on. And in this way, all these curious beliefs about the past and about how music is made wonderful come to feel entirely natural, as if things could be no other way than they are. One learns to combine love of the effects of music Love for one's parents who are encouraging one, love for one's teacher who is enabling one, with love for the composer. It becomes a hugely comforting idea that if we worship well enough, we shall be deeply moved and move others. And all this contributes to the use of classical music as comfort for those who wish culture to reassure them that all is well in their world. Because classical music costs so much money, 
to learn and to consume. This in practice means comfort for the already very comfortable. Everyone belongs. Everyone knows how to show that belonging in sound. You can see how, by the time one reaches the profession, after all these years of upbringing, it's extraordinarily hard not to believe that the way we make music from these scores is the only proper way of doing it. It's easy to see how useful this belief system is for gatekeepers to the profession. It gives them cultural power, allows them to know how a work should sound, and to require performers to make it sound that way. That's a really important element in their professional authority. It gives them a job to do and the power to do it. It gives them quite a different relationship with their public than writers and critics of the theatre have. There, their role is more to learn, to explore with the performers, directors, designers and actors, what a text might suggest. In music, though, critics and writers are there to guard and to instruct. That's why we have all these books on performance practice, telling performers what they ought to do, and why we have a tradition of record reviewing that tells them what they should have done. It's great for the writers, but I think it's high time we called them out on it. Last, and certainly not least, the quasi-religious belief system around classical music brings financial advantage, and as ever with money, it brings it to as few people as possible. If everyone knows how a score is supposed to sound, the business can get away with the least possible paid rehearsal. Most practice and preparation is done by musicians at home, unpaid, or during conservatoire training when the students are paying for it themselves. True, there's not much money being generated that could be used to pay for rehearsal, even if one wanted it, because audiences are relatively small and performances don't get runs lasting several weeks that they get in the theatre. But it's a vicious circle. People don't go to concerts, other than for comfort, because classical music operates its own quasi-religious culture to which you need to feel you belong. And many who belong still don't go, because performances are so predictable. You can't go to a new production of Beethoven's Ninth. Yet. The other financial benefit that a work-centred belief system produces is that composers, publishers and record companies all have something to sell. Something that, through their notion of the work, they can copyright and own. Something that the law can consider their intellectual property. There's a separate chapter on this, chapter 15, in the book that accompanies these podcasts, where we see why performers get so little benefit from this, despite the fact that they do so much of the work that the public is paying for. By seeing music as intellectual work, not practical work, it's possible for all the financial value in it to be allotted to the composer and none of it to the performer. Nifty, but unjust. So what I'm saying here is that the performance of a score is always contributing a large part of what as listeners we experience as the music. And that's just as true in an entirely conventional performance as it is in a very unconventional one. It's simply that when it's conventional, 
we don't hear the performer because we're so used to hearing what they do that it has come to seem quite natural. That allows us to pretend to ourselves that we're only hearing the composer or the work. And it allows the system not to reward performers properly for what they're doing. But it's quite wrong, practically and ethically. And I think that if we properly recognised and valued the contribution performance makes, it would transform the way we think about and perform this music. I also think, and I'll be hoping to persuade you in later episodes, that that transformation would bring many benefits in all kinds of well-being for musicians and audiences. In the next episode, we'll look at how the teaching of music could encourage creativity. You can read about this in more depth in the free online book Challenging Performance, which you'll find at challengingperformance.com. Follow the link to the book. There are lots of alternative performances there, which, since you're still listening, you are certainly open-minded enough to enjoy very much. Until next time. <laughs>